So, you know, there are a great many things in this world, good things, uh, things from the hand of God which bring us joy. One of them is watching our own children as they grow and mature, and they're different uh, seasons in their lives and different things that they take on and experience. For example, when they're young, they may take up something like baseball. Uh, they learn to throw and catch and swing the bat, and sometimes they even manage to hit the ball. And maybe you can help them as you can, and in all of that, whether you're able to help them or not, you kind of take a pleasure in it, don't you? It's fun to watch them. And maybe they stay with it for a while, and they decide that they're going to try out for a team. And and so they make the cut, and you're really happy for them. That sand lot or backyard baseball was fun. But making the team, why, that fills up the joy. <laughs> you're really happy for them. Then they're older. And baseball was fun, but but they're looking toward their future. They have applied to different colleges, taken the prerequisite courses and tests, and they've filled out all the applications. Maybe maybe with a good deal of prodding from you, but they've gotten it done. And then they get uh, accepted at different schools, and they choose one. And all of that brings a kind of joy with it. Semesters come and go, and you're happy as you see them learning, growing, maturing, and as you listen to them talk, and talk about their friends, and they talk about their experiences, they talk about the things that they're learning, and they graduate, and you're proud of them, so proud of them, and it brings you joy, and then <laughs> they get that first job, and that, in large part, was what it's all been about. You're glad for them. There's this, this completion of a fullness of uh, of your joy, which is associated with the end of that long process. There's a kind of happiness uh, uh, that we experience through that whole process, but there is an end and, and the goal that we've been looking for. And when we get there, it completes our joy, what we've been looking for, what we've been hoping for, and now it's here, and we find a real satisfaction. You know, the Apostle Paul understood that progression of joy which comes through a process as we live out our lives here on this earth. And we find him talking about it in his letter to the Philippians. You know, Paul himself is not in a place that we would normally associate with joy. He's in prison, and unjustly so, which would make it seem even less likely, we might think, to hear someone talking about joy in that situation. But he does. And he tells us uh, just what it is in the case of the Philippians, which would fill up his joy, which would make it complete for him. Now, we've been making our way through the book of Philippians through the summer. We're going to do that for the rest of the summer, hopefully finish up in a reasonable time and start in Romans in the fall. But I'd like to invite you to join me once again, if you would, in in the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 2, where we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. And, of course, then we'll have the, uh, the text on the screen on either side of me. Now, we haven't very traveled very far through this book yet. Um, we're only just now beginning chapter 2. But we've already heard, and if you've been here, we've talked about it together. We've heard Paul talk about joy twice now. And the first time he mentioned it was in reference to the preaching of the gospel. See, it was happening everywhere, all the time, and all around him. We discover as we read that the motives weren't always good, but Christ was being 
preached. And that made Paul happy. When the, when the name of Christ is lifted up, people come to know him. People are encouraged and grow in their faith. And so Paul rejoiced in that. Later, he tells us he would continue rejoicing because he was confident, although he's in prison, he was facing a possible death sentence, or he, maybe he'd be released. He was confident that the Spirit of God would enable him to always bring glory to God, whether Paul lived or died. And for a, a person who's put their faith in Christ, who walks with him, when Christ is so important to us, that kind of thing is just vital to us. And so Paul was rejoicing for those things. And now he tells us, he'll tell the Philippians uh, what will fill up that joy and what will make it complete. And so chapter 2 begins with these words. Oh, it, it would help us to understand why Paul says what he does here, why he puts the things the way he does. If we remember uh, from last time, the Philippians themselves were going through the same kind of things which they had seen Paul go through when he first met them, when he first came to Philippi, when he first introduced them to Jesus Christ, in which Paul himself was now going through again. So the Philippians themselves were being mistreated. They, they were being persecuted for their faith. And that's not a pleasant thing to go through, but Paul, well, he knew the way. He'd gone on before them just as Jesus had. And so he writes to them in verse 1, Therefore, who are, since you're going through this hard time, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And we're going to stop right there for just a moment. You see, Paul is in essence saying to them, I know that you're going through trying times. But let me ask you something. Is Christ real to you? You know, we can say he asks that by asking them four different questions. First, he says, do you have any encouragement from being united with Christ? Does it help you to know that you belong to him? Does that matter to you and your faith? Secondly, he asks, do you have any comfort in his Love, I know you're hard-pressed, but Christ loves you, doesn't he? Does that make any difference to you at all? And then he says, do you have any common sharing in the spirits? Or as most uh, translations put it, any fellowship of the spirit. And that means not just fellowship that we have between us and the Father through the spirit, but also the fellowship that we as believers share with one another. Have you experience that and does it change your life any and finally he says do you even have any tenderness and compassion you know Paul's saying something like this your heart hasn't become hard through all of this has it doesn't your relationship to Christ make it difference make you different than you otherwise would be. You see, Paul's not expecting perfection here. He, he uses a qualifier with every one of those questions of any. Do you have any of these things, he says. 
he, he's not even expecting an overabundance of them. He wants to know if they're there, even in a small amount. He wants to know that they're there so that, uh, so that they're in the Philippians, that God has something to work with, and the Philippians themselves have something to build on. You know, Paul's not appealing to some kind of a super-Christian. You know, there really are none of those. There really are no super-Christians. There's only a super-God which we all serve. And his appeal is to all who have put their faith in Jesus. You know, you and I, we're not perfect either. We know we're not super-Christians. We know that we struggle, but we believe, don't we? we? We believe in a God who is bigger than anything that we might grow through. Does that matter to us at all? Of course it does. <laughs> the, the storm may be raging all around you, but you have an anchor for your soul, and it holds, as the old song says. You can be buffeted by the waves and the wind, but the anchor holds. We belong to God, and that will never change. And that ought to make a difference to us and in us. And we, we ought to want to live like we talked about last time. We ought to want to live a life worthy of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says to the Philippians. You're going through a hard time, he says, but you belong to Christ. And so, in verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul tells them, this is how you can make me really happy. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But for now, I want us to, uh, to notice Paul is really echoing what he said earlier, which we looked at last week about how a life, uh, we're to live life worthy of the gospel. He doesn't repeat himself exactly. He echoes it. He rephrases what he said, at least part of it. He reminds them that as Christians, we need to be unified, like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. See, we're, we're family. We're united in Christ. And many of you have said, as Ann and I have said, that when we came here first to Y Bible Church, we felt as though we'd come home. I want you to know as the pastor here, I cannot tell you how many people have told me that very thing. People who have been here for a lot longer than I have and people who are new to our congregation, they feel like this is home, that this is family, and that's the way it should be. And really, the truth is our family is bigger than just this small group of people contained in this room. But this, this is the local expression of the body of Christ right here. It's, it's Christ expressing himself in us and through us. And, and this congregation contains all of what we need to experience church here on earth, uh, now on this earth, with you and me and this group. You see, a family is one good descriptor of what happens here. Now, I really do. I suppose I need to remind you that uh, that our unity doesn't mean that we agree on everything. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, 
there has to be some things that uh, we do agree on everything. There are important points in which there is absolute agreement. I mean, there's no giving up ground on things like the deity of Christ or the blood atonement or the Trinity or our need of a Savior and the fact that we can't get into heaven on our own steam. But there's latitude and other things that we may call secondary issues. For, for example, although we in this church practice baptism by immersion and we only baptize believers, we know other genuine followers of Christ who do things differently. But you see, we're still part of the same family. Our unity is not uniformity. It's in our shared love for Christ and our shared love for one another. And and we need to maintain that. So there's a there's a scene in the old movie The Godfather. I probably most of you've seen it, even if you're younger. And uh, and in that first uh, first episode, that first movie, you know, uh, the Turk approaches uh, Don Corleone and he, he wants him as a business partner. And the Turk deals in heroin. And there's a lot of money to be made there, and he offers the Don some of the profits in exchange for his political protection that he can provide. You see, Corleone owned a lot of uh, judges and politicians. The Don wants no part of it. He thinks it's a bad business, and he politely turns the Turk down. And then the Don's own son speaks up, and he disagrees with his father right in front of the and the Don asks for forgiveness for his son's rash words, <laughs> citing his youth as an excuse. The meeting ends, and the Don then turns to Sonny and says, Never let anyone outside of the family see that we're not united, because they'll exploit that. And the Turk did, if you know the movie. He tried to kill the Don, and once he was out of the way, he reasoned that Sonny would take the deal. See, our unity protects us, and our divisions will destroy us. And if the Philippian church were to show the kind of unity that Paul is talking about here, this family spirit, then Paul says that would fill up his joy. It would make his joy complete. Of course, the real fulfillment and completion of our joy is what? It's not going to come until we're in the presence of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And Paul certainly would agree with that. But Paul's goal for the Philippians, you understand, was that they would live as Christians ought to live in this world. And if they would do that, it would complete his joy, just as our kind of uh, joy is completed when a kid makes a team or gets a job. It's, it's the end of a particular goal, and we rejoice over that. That kind of unity that I'm talking about, that the Scripture is talking about here, is so important. It's more important than I know how to say, more than we might imagine. But you want to know something? We have it here. We do. We have it here in our church. And yet, even when it exists, well, I don't want to say that it's fragile because it's real and it's beautiful and it really will be one of those things that lasts forever. So in a sense, it's it's more solid than concrete. But it is kind of like walking a tightrope 
And if you step off on either side, it could be disastrous. You see, Satan is out there, and he's trying to knock you off the path. And, and, and our own sinful nature is always trying to lead us astray. And the world is busy trying to distract us from our purpose. So that, that unity that we know, it has to be maintained. It needs to be guarded. And, and every one of us has our part to play in keeping it. So in order to live a life worthy of the gospel, to live as real family, Paul tells the Philippians there are some things they need to know and do, things to avoid and things to put into practice. And if we would do those same kinds of things and we would keep the unity that we have here, we won't find ourselves then fighting one another instead of fighting the good fight. We will remain on the side of God and his people and fighting against the evils of this world. The first thing that Paul says about this is we need to know the dangers that are inherent in our sinful nature. He puts it this way in the beginning of verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And I have to take those two terms pretty well describe our sinful nature. And that great term uh, uh, means a selfish ambition, means really just a willingness to do whatever it takes to put yourself in front of everyone else. Now, I have to tell you, our world exalts that kind of thinking, but, but that sounds pretty ugly to me. And even a blind man on a flying horse to see that kind of thing won't bring unity, it destroys it instead. And vain conceit, that's vain glory, groundless self-esteem, empty pride. It means, it means being proud when we really have nothing to be proud about or, or putting our confidence in our own self rather than in God. And every time we do that, every time we do that, we fall and we fall hard. And it causes problems for everyone around us too. And divisions follow. You know, Paul gives us a kind of a total prohibition here. He says, don't do any of that. Paul says, nothing of it at all. Avoid it like you would avoid the plague. It's not okay to set your clothes on fire even a little bit. You're going to get burned if you do. Just don't do and still, as hard as that might sound, it's nothing other than what Jesus has said to us to deny ourselves, take up our cross every day and follow him. And it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to do that very thing. As Romans says, it's the spirit that God's in us, that's in us that enables us to put to death the misdeeds of our body. Of course, we all fail. All the time we fail. But there's repentance and forgiveness and we begin again the aim is don't let our sinful nature get control of us the way we do that the positive side of that prohibition is seen in what Paul says next first we need to be humble and so we pick up in the middle of verse 3 from the beginning, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He says, rather in humility, value others above yourself, 
not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. You know, Christians, you know this, I know you know this, Christians consider humility a virtue. But you know, anthrop anthropologists and historians will tell you that throughout the ages, people, generally speaking, don't think of humility in those terms. It wasn't until the advent and rise of Christianity that humility became something that people valued. And I think it's a sad note on our own culture that we now exalt pride and phony self-esteem over a humble spirit. You know, most people don't even know what humility really means. They tend to think of, a, of it in terms of being like a doormat, an obsequient Casper milk toast, someone without any backbone at all. But real humility takes great strength and great courage, and as such it makes us rely on God. Paul gives us a good working definition of humility when he says we ought to value others above ourselves. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a deliberate act on your part. It simply means you just decide that other people are more important to you and that you're going to put them first. You put them in front of you. So you happen to be one day in the long line of traffic and kind of stop and go and you're wanting to get where you want to get you know and there's there's someone who wants to get in line and you see them there and, and what do you do and well you kind of let them go in front of you maybe you even let another person go in front of you now you can't let everybody in because there are people behind you and you want to be considerate of them also what you've done in that case is you've put other people ahead of you and so that's valuing someone above yourself. It's just a good picture of it. And not only does humility deliberately value others, but it, it, it um, causes us to look out for them too. Or as Paul says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So your neighbor's tree falls, and part of that tree is on your property, and you want it off. And he's responsible to take care of it. You know that, right? So you go over and you take your chainsaw and you help him deal with the whole tree. He's your neighbor and you look out for him. You can see, can't you, how that kind of thing would unite people rather than drive them apart. When I start to think, when you start to think that brother or that sister is of great worth and that Christ died for them. When I start valuing them above myself and making decisions to live that way, when, I, when I'm not just thinking about watching out for my own good, but I look for what is good for others around me, then Christianity flourishes. We're drawn together and there's a real unity, a deep down in the own kind of togetherness that even sin can't shake. And we live a life that's worthy of the gospel. You know that scene from The Godfather I told you about that Don didn't want outsiders to see any divisions. But it wasn't just about appearances, you understand. He wanted real unity in his family. Sonny, all he was thinking about was the money. Thinking about himself. Don saw the bigger picture. 
and, and, and he knew there was a place to discuss their differences. They should they should end up in agreement of some court, at least, at the very least, agree to disagree. They were a family, and they had to act like one. They had to be unified. So it may be that we have differences. It, it may be that sin has even entered into the picture, and we need to deal with those things, each of them in an appropriate way. But through it all, we are a family. We need to live as a family. We need to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Don't let our sinful nature take control. Live in humility, counting others more important than yourself and looking for their good. And you know, Paul summarizes all he said here. He does so by talking about our heartbeat. He tells us our heart ought to beat like our Savior that we need to be like him. And so verses 5 through 7 we read, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That is, be like Jesus. Let your heart keep beat with his. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made, of powerful words. That hymn that you see set apart in your Bible is one of the most amazing pieces of literature ever written. Filled with truth that just boggles the mind. But just in the little bit we read, we know that Christ knew no sin. Though sin attacked him. And Jesus valued you and me so much that he died in our place. He didn't merely look out for what was good for him. He thought about you and me, each one of us, as he hung on that cross. He was and is God. But he didn't use that as an excuse. He didn't use it to his advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing. He humbled You know, we have, don't we? We have an awful lot to be glad about. An awful lot of things give us joy. But our joy is going to be incomplete in this life until we, and those we love, live life worthy of the gospel. We, we know that none of us is perfect. But if we really have a relationship with Christ, then we need to do something about it. We need to be unified. We need to be aware of the dangers inherent in our own sinful nature and by the help of the Holy Spirit to put them to death. We need to be humble, valuing others above ourselves and looking out for their good. And our heart, our heart, should keep time with our saviors. Is anything in life more precious than that? 
given us a wonderful group of people. Let's keep it. Let's keep it. Let's guard it. Let's make it grow. For his Father, thank you um, for your provisions for us that um, really go beyond all that we can enumerate. Um, every good and perfect gift we have ever had has come from you. We thank you for that. We thank you for the best gift of all, the gift of your son. And we thank you for this church, for the people here, for your work in our we offer you ourselves and our thanks in Jesus' wonderful